Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life on Earth podcast. It's been a little while since our last conversation. Well, sometimes life gets busy. What can I say? Right? I'm recording this podcast intro from St. Croix, St. Croix, Virgin Islands. Yoo-hoo! Yes, I'm here teaching a yoga teacher training and workshops for the lovely studio Island Movement. It's been wonderful getting to know the community here and soaking in all the magic of this beautiful island. This podcast is brought to you by Shanti Yoga Training School. Today's guest is Raghunath. Raghunath has a great story and so much wisdom to share. He has been featured in some major podcasts such as Joe Rogan, as well as Rich Roll Podcast. Raghunath is a longtime yogi, spiritual teacher. In this episode, you will hear how I met him almost 20 years ago in Los Angeles. He is also a musician, a podcaster, and the co-founder of Super Soul Yoga and Farm, a school in the countryside upstate New York. I hope you enjoy this conversation about life, spirituality, yoga, evolution. It was so much fun to hang with him. Check out our show notes where you will find links to all of the things Raghunath and I mention in this episode. All right, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Life on Earth, the Peace Project, a podcast that teaches you how to connect with the divine and transform darkness into light through topics from yoga to nature and ultimately love. Join your host, Natalie Kwa, to celebrate and encourage diversity, peace, and global equality, one earthling at a time. Welcome to Life on Earth podcast, Raghunath. How are you? Also, I saw on your Instagram, Ray. Is that how a lot of people like to call you? I've rebirthed myself a few times in this lifetime. When I was a teenager, I'm 56 right now. So when I was a teenager... And you look like you're 30. I'm sorry I had to say that. (laughs) You need a close up. (laughs) Thank you. But when I was a teenager, I was sort of famous in a punk hardcore band that popularized straight edge, which is no drinking, no smoking, vegetarianism. That was like when I was 18, 19, 20. And then when I was 22, I got a little bit more of a spiritual calling. I got into yoga, you know, in the 80s, which not that many people were into yoga back then, unless you were into spiritual things. And that's what sort of like led me to India when I was 22. I quit my band and I went to become a monk and I sort of was a monk for about six and a half years. And after a couple of years, I was given the name Raghunath. Then I restarted a band three years into being a monk. And that band became really big, especially your Brazilian. It became very big in Brazil. We had a hit record in Brazil, traveled all over South America. That time my name was Raghunath, but still some of those old fans know me as Ray. So it's sort of, I go by either name. One represents like my first birth on this world. And the other one is my second birth. Sort of like my yeah. spiritual birth. You have such a great story. Thank you so much for joining me today and for gracing Life on Earth podcast with your energy. 
I wanted to give the listeners a couple of backgrounds. One is that I'm sitting outside, so you guys might hear some noises, but it's all hopefully good. Second one that I met you, Raghunath, way back when I worked at Yoga Works. I worked at several of them. I don't remember if you did too, but I know that I met you at the one in, what was that called? The one that was like between Center for Yoga and Montana. Montana, yeah. No, it wasn't Montana. It was that other one. Well, back then there was like two yoga works. There was Main Street in Montana. That's when I first started working there. It was before it got sort of purchased. It was sort of a mom and pop property by Mati Israki and Chuck Miller. Right. And then they sold themselves off to a bunch of investors and it became a chain. Exactly. And so that time, I basically started there with the Shtanga because that was all that I first knew how to teach. And I was in a Meister style program and learned a ton from Mati. And then I went to one of your classes at Yoga Works. Okay. And absolutely loved it. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great time. How did you start teaching at Yoga Works? I never had a plan to be a yoga teacher. I was always fascinated by very broad-minded spiritual philosophy. So I started hanging out at yoga ashrams and schools in New York City when I was a teenager. Like I said, when I was 22, my father died, my band became successful, and I was a little, just the juxtaposition of like material success meets sort of a random death with someone that you love. It's sort of like it accelerated my spiritual path. And then I went to India. At that point in my life, I was just very, very into Eastern culture and a very sort of wide-gated understanding of spirituality. And I had already been doing yoga with different teachers in New York. But again, back then, yoga wasn't so secularized. It was sort of a spiritual tradition. It wasn't about working out. It was more of a spiritual tradition. So I always just did yoga, even like in the ashrams and in India. And and then when I came back to the States, it was just sort of part of natural health and healing and stuff like that. So then when I moved to Los Angeles, I wasn't quite sure, am I going to do music anymore? It's like I'm in a punk or a hardcore band. And it's sort of like, sort of has a timeline on it. I don't know if I want to do this my whole life. And so I thought, you know what? I do yoga every day. I did a stunga also every day. I did in Los Angeles. Maybe that's where we met, just doing a stunga together. Yeah, and well, I, from the And studio. it was sort of like, my background was in Indian music, kirtan, bhajans, Indian cooking and devotional life and chanting mantras and Vedic philosophy. So it was my passion, my joy and my passion as well. I thought, I wonder if I should just start teaching yoga. And I was like, oh, maybe I should start teaching yoga. And one of the assistants at the Astanga said, and she was a yoga teacher, and she said, you know, can you sub for my classes? And I was like, well, I'm not really an official yoga teacher. You know, I do it every day. Just do it. And she goes, I know, but I know you know a lot about this stuff more than I know. Why don't you just teach for me? I'm going away for a few weeks. And so then I was like, okay, because I didn't really have anything to do. I was a professional musician. I'd tour for like three months a year. I'd make a chunk of money. And I would put it in my vault in my house at the time. And I would just like do yoga and jujitsu every day. That's all I did. I did Brazilian jujitsu. And so I had, yeah. And so I had time and that's what I did. And I got hired at every place. I immediately became like a yoga teacher, even though I was never officially trained to be a yoga teacher. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll do the yoga works teacher training and figure out how they teach yoga. That's how I started teaching at yoga works. And Mati and Chuck hired me immediately after the training. That's awesome. What I remember of your classes is that they were very challenging. 
I was working as a yoga advisor at that one studio that you were teaching as well. And I would come and sub for Brock Cahill very often. And he had a class. Yeah, he's awesome. And he had a class like right next to yours, like, you know, time-wise. So I would sub his class and I would take your class. Your class, at least that one that I was going to, was challenging. I mean, you were doing all kinds of like handstands at the time and like just different moves and arm bounce. And you were playing an instrument in the class as well. Yeah, I play harmonium. I really loved it. And then at some point back then, you even mentioned the farm in New York, I believe that's when you mentioned. And then all of a sudden, I just knew that I wasn't seeing you anymore. And I was even like to other (laughs) teachers, where is it? Where did he go? What happened? At what point did you make the move? It was like 2007. I sort of packed it up. And truthfully, I moved to New York City at first. I got offered this really big apartment in New York City for ridiculously low rent. And I got all these yoga studios that asked me to start teaching there. So I became a very big teacher almost overnight in New York City. But my passion was to really run a center in the countryside. I was sort of over New York City, but I was helping. And one of the original people teaching at the Bhakti Center in New York City with my teacher who he doesn't directly officially, but he inspires it. And that's Radhanath Swami. And so I started teaching yoga there and I started teaching at big studios in New York. And then eventually it just wasn't working out for my family, raising children in New York City. So we moved upstate. And then in 2014, we bought this property. It's like a retreat center and it's a home. We have a I was second house on the property. I ask you about your retreats. What are the offerings that you need there? Things have sort of like changed different shape over the years. It's always mixed with a blend of bhakti, which is devotional yoga, which has a lot of kirtan involved and storytelling from the Puranas and the Vedic teachings, sort of making philosophy sort of relevant. That's my passion. So we had like a yin and bhakti. This weekend, we have like a strong bhakti vinyas weekend coming up with me and Cindy Lunsford, who's a big teacher in the South. And we do our podcast. We have a pretty big following. I mean, reasonably big. We've got about 10,000 downloads a day with our podcast. And we do basically study awesome. of... The, yeah, it's great. It's a great... And we do it every day. It's also me and my friend's passion. We were both friends as teenagers from the punk scene. And then we both became monks about a similar time. He was 21. I was 22. And we've known each other for years. And we've traveled all over the world together, all over India together. We both became yoga teachers. He did a stunga in New York City and I did it in Los Angeles. And then we came full circle when I moved back to New York City and we started this podcast in 2020, just before the pandemic. And then right when the pandemic What's the hit, name of your podcast? Sorry, sure. It's called The Wisdom of the Sages. Okay. And it's a comprehensive study of the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is awesome. all the stories of all the avatars of Vishnu. So it's a lot of like these fantastic stories meets with very, very relevant philosophy. And even though it's philosophical, it's fun, it's lighthearted. We have a hundred people that just join us live and then we have 10,000 that download it every day. So we have a like live audience on Zoom and anybody can get on it and it's community supported. So it affords us just to do it full time. And I travel a lot for what I do. So I'm always just taking my gear with me, setting up. I was just in Florida this weekend or... I'll travel and teach a lot. I go to Europe a lot. I go to India a lot. And so Wisdom of the Sages, you can check it out wherever you get podcasts. There's 800 episodes. And I think it really took off because a month after I was 
already doing the podcast, Joe Rogan asked me to be on his podcast because me and Joe were old friends from martial arts. I did Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We both did Brazilian jiu-jitsu in Los Angeles. Yeah, somebody sent me that from Yoga Works and I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. And I loved it. I listened to it. It was really well done. I really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, thanks. It was a good opportunity. I mean, people have listened to that because Joe Rogan's so big right now. People listen to it and they're like, oh, that sort of makes sense. And then they listen to our podcast. Like, I have so many people listening to our podcast that listened from the first time I heard that Rogan podcast every day since then. And that was a big bump for our followers. And also, I was on Rich Roll about a year ago or so. Oh, you were? I didn't know. I got to download that. I work very closely with his wife, Srimati. AKA Julie Pyatt. She has actually yeah. been on Life on Earth podcast as well. And you know, she I saw is, that when I looked up your podcast. Yeah. yeah. I talk to her often and she's kind of one of my biggest mentors, I should say. I completely adore her. I have nothing but great things to say about them. What a great couple. Yeah. That worked out really good too. It was just sort of gave us a big bump and rich yeah. concentrates on vegan, people from recovery, as well as athletes. So it's something I sort of like really relate well, to and, and, and people very, can too. And very well deserved all of the above because you have been on this journey forever. And you, like <laughs> I said, when I talked to you off the podcast, you're one of those people on my book, yogis that I know that I've always felt that you were very rooted, very grounded and substantial. And it wasn't coming from a place of ego and it wasn't coming from a place of anything else. But this is really who you are and what you live and what you do. And I feel like there's such a need for that, especially in this world where we are, that everything is so transient and changing and moving so fast. And then we've got the modernization of yoga. And I want to ask you a question, but let me say this. With your background as a monk, you were a monk for, you told me, eight years. Six said, and a half no, years. Six and a half years. Okay. And you and I, we share this background of, well, you're a monk in the Hare Krishna. I was an outside devotee. I was coming to the ashram in Rio very regularly. I mean, drove my parents nuts. They had to take me there before school. Go figure that out. Would get there sometimes 5.30 in the morning and then go to class at like close to eight. And my mom had no idea why this was happening when I'm like 13. And here I have like posters of wow. Krishna on the when wall. When you were 13, that's 13, amazing. 13, 12. I mean, it's <laughs> like, it was insane. And this whole thing lasted, you know, until I was like really kind of 19, 20. I got involved in Ashtanga when I was about 19 or 18. And then I went to India very quickly and met Fatabi Joys. And that set me on a 10-year journey. But anyways, my question to you until I only got to vinyasa flow when I was at Yoga Works and it was through going to classes like yours and Brock Cahill. And then I met who became a very important person in my life, Annie Carpenter, who again is like a mom. Annie to me, I'll do anything for her. Because of that, I then merged into smart flow yoga and yoga teacher trainings with Annie. And now I have my own stuff and I'm doing... So I train a lot of teachers and you know, you and I know this system now of yoga, like 200 to 300. So after you have gone through so much in your life, my question for you right now is, what does yoga mean to you today? I'm so interested in your perspective for you. And I know it's individual, but you've gone through so many layers and changes. What is it for you today? I think that's a real relevant question. Again, my background is slightly different. Like yourself, I didn't get into yoga 
people come to my yoga classes because they want to learn how to do a handstand or how to do an advanced asana. But I didn't get into yoga for a physical routine. I started studying Ayurveda because I was into vegetarianism at a young age. And I'm from a big Italian family. We ate lots of meat. And I knew like I couldn't sustain myself on peanut butter and jelly and Coca-Cola. And so when I moved to New York City when I was 18, I was like, well, there's got to be a natural way to eat. And it led me to sort of like these Ayurvedic teacher. And it was very rare to find Ayurvedic anything in 1986 or in 1987. But I, by good fortune, met an Ayurvedic teacher. And he started teaching me how to eat, started teaching me about natural health, started teaching me about different constitutions, started teaching me about Abhiyanga. And then that opened me up to the Bhagavad Gita. And he happened to be a Krishna devotee who is with Swami Prabhupada in India. And then I was like, oh, you're a Krishna devotee? That's peculiar. I thought they were all monks. He goes, no, I was a monk when I was a young man, but not any longer. He had a big red beard. And so he started explaining to me and sort of making me understand a broader picture of the spiritual traditions of India. New York was a really weird, eclectic, mixed bag of people in the 80s, musically and culturally. It was just like a mixed bag of misfits, especially in the Lower East Side of New York. So I fit right in there and so did sort of alternative philosophies, alternative diets. I got a job at a vegetarian restaurant, which is also a weird thing back then, or a health food store, another weird thing back then. There was no major whole foods or things like that. My entrance into yoga was because I worked at a vegetarian restaurant, was into Ayurvedic medicine, and then I started reading books on spirituality. And I knew I could appreciate even the New Testament, which I grew up on, but I felt like there has to be something more for people of all cultures. And India has always been a hub for spiritual truth. So then I started studying the original teachings of the Vedas, including Swami Shivananda, various different yoga sutras, and Prabhupada's Srimad Bhagavatam, which translation of the Bhagavad Purana. And that led me to Dharamitra, who was one of my first yoga teachers in New York City, brought to me by a friend who frequented my restaurant. And of course, Dharma is a very spiritual person. He still practices yoga. Back then, Sharon and David from Jiva Mukti were in that class as well, taking the class. It was like a very, very beginning time of yoga in New York. And so it was a little bit exciting, a little bit sort of had a mystique to it. And then, of course, when I read Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita, which was recommended to me by Dharma Mitra, I was like, now I get where this is going. Now I see this in perspective. So truthfully, my asana practice, it wasn't like I was looking for health or wellness or removing lower back pain or sciatica. I did it because I wanted to understand God. I wanted to approach it in a spiritual way. And because I went to India pretty quick, I was 22 years old. I went in 1988 before there were cell phones, before there were personal mm-hmm. credit cards. I didn't have a credit card. You just travel around India back then. I didn't either. I traveled with cash. Yeah, I know. I know. No cell phones, no internet. It was like going to a whole nother world. Even the airport wasn't there. I had some budget old New Delhi airport. Is that still true that you still do your practice as a devotional practice for something higher? Well, yeah. To answer your original question, sorry for the scenic route. But for me, the yoga asanas have always been as it's been taught in India, which is a condiment to a much greater meal. A condiment is like ketchup. A condiment is like mustard. A condiment is not the main course. The main course isn't for me just to breathe and to open back and open shoulders and open hips. It's to, what do you do with this vehicle once you refine the vehicle? 
what's the goal? Where do we go next from it? And sometimes people put so much focus on just how to make the body work better. Okay, what do you do with the body once it works better? Exactly. Where are we going with all this stuff? Yes, thank you. And the yogis say, well, it's meditation. The physical part is the threshold. The controlling the senses, controlling the mind. That's just the beginning parts. And if you want to get to the transcendental part, then you step into your different spiritual practices or spiritual meditational practices as taught by different lineages. So in devotional lineages, it's all with kirtan. It's all with japa on your malas. It's all with pujas and things like that. So for me, I still love yoga and I still love Ayurveda. And I still love all those accoutrements that go with yoga, Ayurveda, cleansing and health. But my passion still is the original thing, which is the bhakti that's behind it. And even when I do a physical practice, I do it in the concept of this is for, this isn't isolated from the meal. I'm not just eating a bowl of sea salt or a bowl of ketchup. I'm seeing it in terms of I'm going to take care of my body, not for my ego. I'm not going to do my handstand for my ego. I'm going to do it, my handstand, because it's purifying my body. It's circulating my blood. It's bringing lower energy to my crown chakra. It's giving me strength because my body is a gift and therefore I want to give back with my body. If I'm doing my yoga asanas for my ego or just to progress through some series of asanas, what good is that? If I'm doing it for my ego, then I'm not doing yoga anymore. That's what materialism is. Us, myself included, all of us, it's something that you have to always keep yourself in check. And I think that's part of yoga the acceptance and the awareness and paying attention. And just, it's again, that's why it's a practice. It's continuous. It's always because it's very easy to, in the mix of all of this, deviate to the ego part as well. Then you bring yourself back. So I could talk to you all day, but I know we've got certain time. Can you give us a little bit of Bhagavad Gita wisdom? I've actually never asked this Bhagavad Gita wisdom. I've never asked this to anybody, but if I was going to ask that, give us a few jewels that you would think. We've got a Mm -hmm. lot of yoga teachers that listen to this podcast, a lot of very avid practitioners. I would love an insight from you to yoga philosophy. That'd be awesome. Well, thank you. It's my great pleasure because Bhagavad Gita is my great joy to study. I think the ABCs of the Bhagavad Gita are super important. They're sort of game changers in the way we live our life. Matter of fact, some of the simple teachings of Bhagavad Gita could save the world right now from the hell they're going through. Right now, we live in a world that identifies with the body as self. It identifies with the skin color as the self. It identifies with our gender as the self. It identifies with our gender preference as the self. And according to the Gita, these are all like rented vehicles. We have some vehicle we drive around with for a few years, a few decades, but they're not us. And to quote C.S. Lewis, we don't have a soul, we are a soul. We are spiritual beings that have a body. We don't have a soul. My mother taught me I have a soul. The souls go to heaven. But the yogis say something much different. It's the actual opposite. The body's not us. The spirit is what's us. And when the spirit animates the body, we appear to be alive, although the body is actually dead matter. It's dead matter and it's always in flux. The yogis will say the goal of yoga is atmagyana or knowledge of the self. In the process of knowing the self, you start to realize what is your false self. Wow, I've been doing so much just for my ego. My pleasure's been in my ego. My pleasure's been in my mind. My pleasure's been in some hope for the future. But where is the pleasure right now? And so the yogi starts to work on who am I underneath my ego pleasure? 
who am I underneath my ego self? Who am I underneath the stuff that I have? Right. Not only do we identify ourselves with our race, our gender, our gender preference, et cetera, we identify ourselves with our stuff, with our shoes, with our clothes, with our purse, with our hair, with our lack of hair, with our political affiliation, with our nation. They're not us. They are just our accoutrements of the false self. And the problem with identifying with the temporary is the temporary is temporary. And therefore, we lose our affiliation with all those things. As I get older, as my body weakens, as I end up leaving my body, that's another twist of yoga. You know, you live a yogic life, you'll be healthy, but people can get lost in health and wellness thinking like, okay, now my body will be this eternal body. It will last forever. I want to be a centarian. I want to live for a hundred years. I want to have a longevity. So I'm going to take these medicinal mushrooms. Doesn't matter how many medicinal mushrooms you're going to take, you're going to die. The body's going to wither. It's not you. Stop yeah. all the investment <laughs> on the body. Take care of the body. It's a gift. But we become obsessed in body consciousness and then we lose our mind as the body ages. That's the problem with taking care of the body. The flip side of that coin is, I think I am the body and we're not. So we have a body. We take care of the body. We love the body. But at the same time, we understand it's not me. It'll also wither. I can do decades of yoga and I can eat organic raw local foods, but I'm still going to have to die. I might even get hit by a car or I might just die untimely in some way or other just because it's my karmic end of life. The point is I've got a body. I got to take care of it so I can give back. Why? Because the body is a gift. That focus on spirit as self instead of race, gender, stuff as self, that alone can save us from so much pain in this world. It can save us from so much bickering in this world. I think that's one of the simple ABCs, and that's right at the beginning of a lot of the Vedic literature, but especially the Gita right in the second chapter. It's beautiful. What do you think about the eight limbs of yoga in terms of like how people are interpreting it and using it? Yoga has become so big and so popular, especially in the West, and very much of it has been westernized. And I've even express this to you and I'll say it and I don't care what people, if you get offended, anyone who's listening, I'm sorry, but I feel much of yoga has been watered down. And sometimes it's hard because I try to come from a place of like not being judgmental to anything because I also think that that's part of the practice and I don't want to be. And also there's always going to be somebody who's more advanced than me and somebody who's less. And I'm still trying to figure things out too. I'm a life learner. But I do feel sometimes as a yoga teacher, and I'm a yoga teacher trainer, I'm wanting to preserve some of that, the jewel sure. of yoga. And I'm wanting to, you know, I was with you in that time of Mati and Chuck and even before in India. So I have experienced that. Many of my students haven't had the opportunity and the privilege, really, you know, to experience what you have experienced for me. And there was something for me that changed me so deeply having had those experiences. Like, I mean, I can't even like describe only like you could probably know, you know, it's a core essence of you that just changes to this inner peace. And still life is a struggle and there's a lot of battles. And of course, you know, I'm just human like everybody. I just, if I want to transmit that to people, you know, and so I just would love for yoga to not be so watered down in some ways, even though I also understand and have been told by some yogis in my trainings and stuff, hey, Yoga is freedom. It's whatever. 
I do whatever I want with my yoga. You do whatever you want. And I'm like, yeah, okay. According to, but, here's the deal. And you make a beautiful point. Yeah. And I'm sure your students get a lot from you because I think you're a pretty genuine person. But it's like if I have a glass of orange juice and I'm selling it for five bucks. And then I was like, man, if I could just add a glass of water to this, I could make 10 bucks now. I could charge twice as much. I'll sell two glasses of orange juice. And if I add another glass of water, I can make three glasses of orange juice. The problem is after the fourth glass of water, fifth glass of water, eventually I'm not selling orange juice anymore. I'm selling watered down, whitewashed orange water. And so I'm not even criticizing because, hey, moving and stretching is important stuff. It's good because we live in a world that doesn't move their body. No one works outside anymore. We work in cubicles. We drive cars. We get home. We sit down and watch TV. So just to even mow the lawn is pretty impressive when people do it. So just to have people move and stretch, good for them. At the same time, we're the holders of this torch of transcendental knowledge. And I don't want it to be cut short. This well goes very, very deep. The best thing I can do is if I put this stuff in practice and live it, yoga's for everyone, yoga's for whatever you make it. Who says? Who says? That's called appropriation. Sometimes I'll say, oh, American yoga is cultural appropriate. No, it isn't. It's when you take it and make it whatever you want it to be. That's appropriating the yoga system. The yoga system actually is a tradition. And to just make it your own thing and call it whatever you want, I don't even care. Just say, I'm giving a stretching class. Stretching classes are great. But why call it yoga at that point? If you want yoga, then you should teach the foundations of yoga. And that starts with those eight limbs, yamaniyama, asana, pranayama. You put those into the yoga system. That even in itself is not necessarily yoga. That's the foundation. That's preparing you for uh, Dharma, it's Dhyana, the Samadhi. Yeah, it's, it's just the walking through the threshold, meaning yeah. I have to have appropriate behavior. There is behavior that goes with getting the result of the yoga system. If you want Samadhi, is the eighth limb, your mind needs to have a type of sameness. That's where we get the word samadhi from. If there's no sameness because it's disturbed because you can't control your senses from the yama and the niyamas, and you just hopped over those because they weren't convenient with your lifestyle, then you just get a flexible body and you get led with your ego very often. But the yamas and niyamas are important to even practice yoga. It's like before you give somebody a gun, you've got to teach them the ethics of, how to use a gun. Who do you shoot? Do you shoot anybody? Do you shoot a bad guy? Do you get shoot someone that's attacking vulnerable people? Yoga is like, in one sense, it's like a weapon. You develop strength. You develop beauty. You develop charisma. You develop charm. You develop health. You develop well-being. You develop a peace of mind. Now, you can use all those things for horrible reasons. You can use your health, your beauty, your wealth, your stillness to manipulate people. So unless you learn the very foundation of the yoga system, the yamas and niyamas, it's like giving a child a loaded gun. So that's why it's like when we do our teacher trainings, et cetera, it's all about these foundational yoga things to take into your life, not to sort of clip your wings, but to enhance your power. If we really want to be transmitters of truth, we have to figure out what is truth, what makes sense, how can I apply it, how will it empower me? Does that make sense? Makes sense. And thank you so much. You are so refreshing to me. It's been an honor to sit here with you and talk to you. And I'm going to come visit you at the farm in one of the retreats. I really want to do it. I've actually been thinking about that for quite a while. So I'm going to do it. I feel like we needed to reconnect. And thank you. I know you got to go. And I just want to say yes. Thank you so much. I'm so in alignment with everything that you're doing. I just love everything that you're doing. And thank you. And, you know, I'll keep 
following you and looking at all the stuff. Do you have anything you want to share with the community about what you're offering? Is anything coming up fun? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you and keep up the good work. This is, I think, really important, just podcasts. It's just like a new way to reach people. And people need some positive fuel separate than corporate media because these algorithms of hate, it's like horrible. People are just hating each other nowadays. And everybody's confused and they're depressed and they're digging up old addictions. And it's very sad. So keep up the breath of fresh air with your podcast. And every year I take a group to India in the autumn. This autumn it's sold out. In March, I take a group to Nepal. And we do pilgrimages on both places with kirtan, with stories. Nepal is especially wonderful because we're trekking through the Himalayas. Wow. Um, And India is wonderful because we go to all holy cities. But I do India in the autumn. That stuff's available, or you can see it on my website, Raghunath, R-A-G-H-U-N-A-T-H dot yoga, Raghunath.yoga. Or I sometimes advertise on my Instagram, which is Raghunath Yogi, R-A-G-H-U-N-A-T-H Yogi. And then I do a training in India and we do a 300-hour training in January and we do a wisdom literature training at the same time. That's only two weeks. The other one is almost a month. And then before that, we do a kirtan training for those who want to add kirtan to their yoga classes or just use harmonium and chanting for their own meditational practice. So that can be found on, I think, Yoga or our website for our podcast, wisdomofthesages.com, wisdomofthesages.com. And check out our podcast wherever you get podcasts or YouTube. I will link everything in the show notes and I'll go ahead and put the Joe Rogan episode and I'll put the ritual episode and I will list the ritual. So have a wonderful afternoon. Send me a good little link too and I'll post it as well. Oh, yay. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Share this episode with someone you love. Follow us on Apple Podcasts and all of your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to check out our show notes for the episode's links. Hope you're having an amazing day wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And I'll see you soon. Bye now.